That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June. Good morning, y'all. So today I had the opportunity to talk to my friend, Mr. Chris White. Chris is a retired Army veteran, an avid fisherman, and also worked in the pharmaceutical industry. We talk about all these subjects, so I hope y'all enjoy. Mr. Chris White. So you were telling me... I hear what that noise was. Like my uh, my computer's making a noise, but I guess it's not. Maybe. Yeah. Um, you you were saying you fished all all up and down Colorado. All over the state. Yeah. So that eleven mile state park is a a big state park, or do you go into the state park? It's eleven miles. <laughs> Just oh, like okay. Yes, that's where it's got its name. Uh-huh. Yeah, it'll go to a dead end. Uh, it's got a lot of rock climbers. There's a lot of rock climbers that are there. Uh-huh. It's got good elevation changes. Uh, the the water runs pretty fast through there as well. So, it, but it's also got long, easy wading streams and pools as well. So, any type of water you want to fish, you can you can find it. So, you fly fish. I fly fish. You ever spin reel or? Uh, only if I feel like slumming, <laughs> but occasionally we do. There have been times when the fly fishing was just so bad, yeah. and we just wanted to catch fish that we would actually get a little net spin or something and throw it on a spinner bait. Yeah. So occasionally we would, but normally there's no reason to, especially there. My favorite thing to do is saltwater fly fish. That's what I like doing the most. Uh-huh. And there are days, if you've got days when the wind's you know howling 35, 40 miles an hour and it's overcast, uh, some days it just makes sense. And let's pick up the spinner rod and throw the fly rod yeah. down. But that's rare. Even those, even those days, I'm still probably going to be trying to fly fish if I can. Where do you f- saltwater fly fish? Mostly uh, South Padre Island. I go way south down okay. at Port Isabel. I've got a bunch of buddies that guide down there. And uh, and I will go with them. And, of course, they've got flats boat skiff where they're up on the platform. Or sometimes we switch off. They, they'll let me guide them around a little bit too you get on the platform and it's what i like about saltwater fly fishing is it com it combines hunting and fishing both uh-huh. because you're not just blind casting like you would be with the bait casting fishing. yeah you're actually spotting them you're wanting to see if they're cruising if they're telling feeding or what they're doing yeah. and then you and then you want to you're trying to make that cast to where they're going to eat yeah i, I went with tommy um like a couple weeks ago to yeah. a pa- port mansfield yeah i was amazed we were like 25 minutes from the coast yeah um, barely, you could barely see the coast, and, and then he's like, "Get in the water," and I'm like, "Wait a minute, what? We're all the way out here." Uh, he's like, "Trust me, get in the water. Get in the water, just above the knee." Yeah. And we just wade, and the boat just floats right behind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so awesome! I, I was spin, uh, spin, spin casting or spin casting. Yeah. 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 I, I haven't learned to fly fish yet, but I want to. If you're gonna go to Colorado and fish, you need to learn to fly fish. It's just okay. like a whole different element. Yeah, we were in Colorado with my my brothers and sisters, and they don't know how to fish um, uh-huh. or keep the uh, the uh, what are they? flies? No, not the flies. Just the little uh, leader. What are they called? No, not leader. Like a little rooster tail. What are those oh, called? Oh yeah, ro- yeah. Okay, oh, I'm, a I'm blanking tail. right now. Uh, Mep spinner, rooster tail, spinner like little spinners and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we lost. We must have lost. Oh, they couldn't keep them tied 30 on. 30 lures. 
It was ridiculous. That's, that's expensive. Yeah. I spent like $70 on lures and just lost the marks Jeez. of all the rocks and yeah. stuff. The, uh, the, there's a big difference between, that's why I like doing both of them, between trout fishing and saltwater fishing. Uh, trout fishing is more of a chess match. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a, you know the fish are in there and they're pretty well going to be in a confined space. Yeah. It's more of a matter of can you get in there without spooking them and then you've got to figure out what they're eating on because those trout in those rivers, they eat off an insect life cycle. Most of the time they're feeding on the nymphs that are laying underneath the rocks that break free from the rocks or, or, and then they, they'll eat them that way or else just get dr- drifted down spring some high water or something. And so the most of the time they're eating those nymphs. But as soon as those nymphs, you know, start emerging, they're going to come up and then they're going to form the adult uh, insect. And when that happens, it's usually a feeding frenzy is on. That's when they call a hatch. And you've got to try to match the hatch uh, and figure out what they're eating on. The color and everything. Color, right? size. I don't... Color's debatable. I mean, okay. do we know if trout can see color? We sure. don't know that. But they, they can tell size. So if you've got too big of a bug out there and they're eating something smaller, they'll ignore you every time. Uh-huh. Uh, so you gotta, and you've got to have a good drift. So it really becomes more of a chess match. And especially if you, that's pretty easy. If you can figure out what the hatch is, pretty good. If you're trying to figure out there's no hatch, you're just trying to figure out what they're eating underneath the, the water at that time. We learned a little trick. Uh, some people catch one and take the guts out and see. That's an easy way to do it. Uh-huh. But the, a better way is, and I've got a, I've got a good buddy that's an Aggie entomologist. He's a fly fishing guy too. He picks up rocks and he looks on the bottom of rocks to see what the larvae are that are floating around because that's what they're going to be feeding on is what's underneath those rocks. Uh-huh. So that's how you can figure out, okay, let me try this and let me, let me see if this one's going to work. Which have you done more, uh, like freshwater or saltwater fishing? Uh, definitely now saltwater, more saltwater. Okay. When I started out, I started out uh Freshwater. I didn't. I didn't even know what saltwater fly fishing was, but I got involved with this little group out of Longview, Texas, called the East Texas Fly Fishers, and then they were like, "Oh man, you got to go down to Louisiana and try red fishing." And I'm like, "What? All right, what's that?" And so we first trip down there, man. I was hooked. It was just unbelievable. Really? Yeah, yeah. Saltwater. The difference with saltwater is you don't have to match because basically everything. That's where I was going with this. Everything is either going to be a crab pattern or a shrimp pattern. There ain't a whole lot of difference. They're going to be eating crabs gotcha. and shrimp. Everything inshore is going to be eating one of those two things. Yeah. So you're just throwing patterns that look like a crab or shrimp. The difference there is you have to be pretty skilled in your casting and accurate because, you know, if you got a fish, that your guide's going to come up and say, all right, Julian, i got a fish spotted at 3 o'clock, 40 yards. And you're like, he goes, tell me if you got him. And I'm like, you know, you'll be like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. But He's you like, got to cast there. Well, then he'll eventually say, point your, if you can't find it and you can't pick it up, which sometimes it's hard to pick it up because they're elevated. They're above you. They can okay, see yeah. a little better. You're just on the flat platform of the boat. They'll tell you, point your rod. And then you'll point the rod and he'll go, stop right there. Make a 30 foot cast or a 40 foot cast or whatever. And so you got to be accurate. And if you got a wind throwing in there and you're getting excited, like, okay, I got this fish, I got to get it. Yeah. You know, you make a cast and he's going to be like, no, they eat from the other end. I'm like, Shh, okay, got the tail, didn't I? That's you legit. see him scoot up. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. How, um, how big are the fish? Like, so you're catching reds, you're going for reds, or you're going yeah. for a sea trout? We Both. I mean, if we see a big mama trout, we'll throw at the trout too because uh-huh. they're fun as well. Uh, mainly reds. Reds fight harder. Uh, yeah. Sheep's head, if you can get one, they're pretty, they're pretty hard to get bites but mm-hmm. um well sheep's head as well i caught my first red out there in port mansfield it was pretty big it was like 26 inches or something they're, like that they're good fighters aren't they yeah and yeah. what was really cool that i didn't know they did did was you take the fish fillet it take it to a restaurant and yeah, just say hey yeah and they cook it for you i'm like wow mm-hmm. that's legit mm-hmm. that's super cool almost all of them down port mansfield is the one port above uh port isabel where, where i go all the time and we a lot of times we'll even go up those intercoastal of course goes all the way to everything up to the mm-hmm. land cut 
Uh, we'll go all the way up to Port Mansfield, especially if we're doing my favorite thing to do in saltwater fly fishing, which is tarpon fishing. What is uh, tarpon? Tarpon is a huge, they can get up to 200 pounds. Holy they shit. don't come, they rarely come in inland, but they do every, you know, they kind of rotate. They're a migratory fish. They'll rotate around the Gulf. And then, and then in Texas, they're usually here around September, October when they're making that, that cut around there. They're easier to catch in Florida because Florida's got bigger bays that are a little bit deeper. You know, they're like seven to eight and they like that depth. Our shallow water laguna is only like three to four average, yeah. so they, they don't usually go in there too much. But in, in summertime, if you've got a, what, when, a day when the, the waves are really low, there's no wind, it's calm, flat, you can go out, the, you can go out and on the third cut, generally is where they will uh, rotate and they're migrating through. And they, they come up and breathe air, and so you'll see them surface, and wow. then that's when it's like, okay, cast. And once you get one of those, they're the funnest fish to catch because they go ballistic if you, if you hook them. First off, uh -huh. it's hard to hook them because they're mouse like steel. But when you do, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go down as deep as they can. So you're going to, and I mean, 200 pounds, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, God, what have I got? And then the next thing you know, they're going to completely change course of action and come straight up out of the water. Uh -huh. And they'll do tail walking where they'll, they'll walk on their tails and spin their heads. And it is a sound you'll never forget because oh, those gills man. are slashing. You can hear them do that too. And then they'll usually end up breaking you off. They, if you can get a tarpon, a tarpon, they usually say, if you jumped a tarpon, that was good enough. You know, you don't, catching them is very hard. To really? Get, to land them? To land them. Just because of all that tail walking they yeah. do, they, they'll jump on the lines. They, they know how to break themselves off of those. What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? That one. I uh, caught one that was about 180 pounds. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it was a fight. It was like a two-hour fight. Too. Holy shit. Yeah, you're wore out. Did you... Time. Did you trade off with anybody or you did the no, whole time? No, we stayed out there the whole time. Wow. Uh, but we were, it was doing a whole lot of sitting and holding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was being dragged. Yeah, yeah. And then the boat would have to go catch up with him because, uh -huh. you know, he was pulling he, he was pulling the boat around in the, in the gulf. That so. is insane. How long ago was that? Uh, it's probably been five years ago. Yeah, probably been five years ago. Wow, that's a fish of a lifetime right there. Yeah. You guys eat it and everything? Oh, no, you don't eat tarpon. Oh really? No, they don't, they're all bones, so they wouldn't be good anyway. Just a game fish. Just to get, just fun to catch. Yeah. Which is mostly what I do. I don't, I, I don't keep fish very often. I rarely keep fish. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really like to do the conservation thing, and I really like having those fish to catch. And I want them to grow big because yes. I, I want the gamesman out of it. Yeah. I, you know, I have no problem with people that catch limits. I do have sometimes I have issues with people that catch limits and have freezer full of fish and then just let them have freezer rot. Yeah. That makes me angry. Yeah. But uh, you know, if you if you want to catch fish to eat, that, I mean, why not? That's that's good. Yeah. And occasionally, I'll, occasionally, it's, I'll keep some, but usually we just throw them back, no matter what we're fishing for. That's what happened when we went to Colorado. My my sister and brother and all that. Like, yeah. let's keep it. I'm like, just let them go. Yeah. And then we kept a couple, so that then they're like. Eh, it was an okay meal. I was like, <laughs> we should have just let it go, you know? Yeah. Let them grow bigger. I, I'm more of like the game where I've, when I first started fishing, all the trout I would catch, I would keep. Mm -hmm. But then after you eat it a bunch of times, you're like, yeah. it's an okay meal, but I would rather let them grow bigger and yeah. leave more fish out only there. Time, only time that I will cook a trout is if we're camping. Yep. And, you know, just streamside or if we're having a, a streamside lunch, you know, we may fillet one then. But, mm -hmm. yeah, for the most part, we, we throw those back. So what do you do with that tarpon? You just release it after you, after you land it? If you're lucky enough to land it, yeah, yeah you, you just release it. You revive it. you got to make sure you get it revived. Yeah. Because once they're weak, they're, they're susceptible to bull sharks coming up mm -hmm. on them. Uh, so we'll revive them and put them back. Most of the time, you don't have to worry about it because they're going to get off. You're not going to land them anyway. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What pound tests are you using to catch that 180-pound uh, fish? Those are usually going to be around 80 to 100-pound tests. So you really got to play it. Yeah. 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 
When you're fishing trout and fishing streams, what are you using? Four pound test? Uh, depends. It depends on what flies are going on. That's when you, you have to match. You know, if I'm using a size 20 fly, which is very, very tiny, it's like mm-hmm. a, a like a regular fly, your house fly, uh, even smaller than that. I'm gonna the tippet, the end of the line, it needs to be very small as well, so you can get it to the lupo and turn the fly over. So usually with those, I'm gonna be using a one X, two X, very very light tippet. Now if I'm using, if I'm throwing western, this is what I like about western rivers, why I like Montana and Colorado because their flyers are like, you know, they're big, they're an uh-huh. inch long, and uh, and you can you can throw a four or five X tippet on there, which is probably like a uh, ten to twelve pound. Oh, okay. And or, or eight pound, and you can get away with throwing those big flies because they're using leader side but some of those trout if you if they're finicky and eating very small fish and very shallow water and you throw a fly line over the top of them it's spooking them so you got to make it where it just barely lands on the water yeah so what's the key to fly fishing throwing upstream and letting the fly come downstream mm, that's always another it depends if you're okay. from England they don't they don't think any educated fly fisher should be fishing downstream that's called, always been the, the norm is you, you fish dry flies upstream only and if the fish don't want that then you don't you don't worry about it that's what you do you fish upstream cast upstream with the dry fly uh-huh. uh, I think the Americanized people kind of got you know screw that we want to catch fish so we're gonna fish downstream with a nymph so now most of the time you, your best chance for catching a fish is to fish a nymph unless you obviously see dry flies on top of the water and then generally you cast 45 degrees across the river and then you want to let it the key thing with trout fishing is get it get to get a good drag you got to make sure that when I say good drag means no drag if that line's dragging through the water that insects not looking natural either it's not, whatever it's doing underwater is not natural you got to make sure that you mend the line back against the current to keep that fly deep and keep to make sure that it's going you know insects in the water aren't aren't stopping and going stopping and going usually yeah. unless it's you know it's one like a helgramite that are, it's a small fish uh the flies are I and mean, those insects have broken loose so they're just free falling mm-hmm. so you got to make sure that you don't have a drag so the best way 45 across men back and then just keep it in the current 45 across upstream or 45 downstream uh depends okay. if you can go 45 if you're fishing a nymph you can go 45 degrees upstream and let it drift down if, you're, if there's a pocket you want to fish there uh-huh. uh and that's usually the better way to do it is to throw a 45 upstream and then let it drift down over your area because if you're throwing down and you're fishing across a river you've pretty well cut off that much of the yeah. river that yeah. you could have effectively fished so uh i would usually you're right usually throw 45 upstream unless okay. i know something's down 45 that i want to throw too where else have you fished? You fished Colorado, Montana. Colorado, Montana, all the way, everywhere out west. Utah. Have uh, you fished California, like the Eastern Sierras? I have. And uh, how do you like that? I actually, only that's where I first started fly fishing. That's where I picked it up when I was in the Army, stationed in uh, Monterey. There were some guys that kept coming back to the barracks with these long rods. I'd have no. I'm an East Texas redneck. I don't know what fly rod was, and uh, I was asking them, "What is that thing?" And they were like, "That's fly fishing." And I'm like. What is fly fishing? They said, we go up to the rivers of Northern California and we, uh, we go fishing up there. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was like, hey, drag me along sometime. So we, we went up there. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just want to realize fly fishing is not exactly easy. Uh-huh. And, and, and unless you're Dana Stevenson, everything's easy to her. I took her out one time <laughs> and showed her how to cast and she was doing what it took me one year to figure out. So, but otherwise, yeah, it's not easy. And uh, I blew, I mean, I was blowing cast everywhere, you know, making a five, Five foot cast, which is also kind of funny. Uh, I used to, and I've been in the pharmaceutical industries for you know almost thirty years. 
We used to be able to do programs where we could take doctors out, do educational programs. If you wanted to go along with a fishing trip or something like that, perfectly legal. Now you can't do that at all. Mm. But I was always taking uh, doctors on fishing trips. And I, I, the worst mistake I made was taking one on a fly fishing trip to go saltwater fly fishing. Uh-huh. Because, the, like I said, you got to be able to cast. And if you can't cast 40, 50, 60 feet, you're probably not going to get a, a fish because those fish aren't going to swim up to the boat and say, hey, I'm right here. Yeah. You know, they're, going to, they're going to see the boats are going to leave. I had a group of guys out there that I was taking fishing, and they were not experienced fly fishers. That's when I realized, don't go saltwater fly fishing if not, because it was so frustrating. They could see fish out there tailing 40 yards, 40, not 40 yards, 40 feet out. They couldn't make a cast further than 10 foot. <laughs> I was just like, you can throw it further than that. Yeah. And that, that's the first thing I think about when you first start with, with saltwater fly fishing is getting the, the cast out there. Yeah. But I uh, fished in Belize. I love Belize. That was one of my favorite locations wow. to fish. Uh, in El Pascador Lodge, um, and that was cool. So you, but in California, you fished like Mammoth, Bishop, that type of area. No, we were at the Inks River. I believe only River. fished only fished it one time in McLeod up Northern California. Okay, in that area, they're mainly steelhead, uh-huh. steelhead trout rivers. Yeah. You know, they come in from the from the ocean and, mm-hmm. and go down. Uh, that's what they're that they're known for. I didn't know what we were fishing for. I was just out there fishing. You catch anything out there? No, when you went? Uh, no. That's what I said. I couldn't catch anything because I couldn't cast. Oh yeah. Yeah. What about Montana? How is it out there? Uh, my favorite place. Really? For trout over, fishing. Over Colorado? Yeah. Wow. Not for, what actually it is, you know, it, it's got natural beauty. If you're looking for pure natural beauty as far as mountains, Colorado's going to be there. Uh-huh. Montana's a close second to me, but, you know, you don't got to get the, the majestic mountain heights yeah. that they've got. But the thing about Montana is it has more rivers. It's got more natural free-flowing rivers. It's mm-hmm. got bigger rivers. And uh, that's, that was one thing we did on our fishing trips. I got this group of guys that I fish with. Uh, they live all over the United States, and we'll usually plan a couple of trips every year to, to locations. Meet up. Meet up, usually in Montana, because we finally, we used to do trips where we would, we would go like in Colorado, fish one river one day, get in the car, drive three hours, fish another river, get in the car, drive three hours. And, you know, we're getting, we're getting a little older and that just wasn't as quite as fun to us anymore. Yeah. We decided, where can we go where we can stay in one location, Airbnb for a week and fish five different rivers? And Montana can offer you that. Ah, uh, okay. Out of, out of Missoula, out of Bozeman, you can, you just got a whole lot of different opportunities. So that's why we normally try to go there. Northern Idaho is the same way. You can do that in Idaho as well. But finding, just finding those rivers is really hard where you can stay in one location and fish a lot of different rivers. I need to do that. I need to take a trip out to Montana and Idaho and check those out. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm a trout fisherman, but I don't have a, a fly rod yet. Um, Alejandro showed me how to cast a fly. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So I definitely need to practice that, get good mm-hmm. at that, because those rivers and stuff with the, like, the amount of rocks, and, you, can't, you can't fish with lures out there. No. So what were you fishing, what were you fishing for in Belize? Generally the same thing. They have in Belize they have this thing they call the everybody wants to get the, the triple play. And the triple play is if you catch a tarpon and if you catch a permit, which is what they're known for. If you that's that's the destination most people go to to, to, to catch permit. Permit. Permit they're called P E R M I T. They're a cool fish. Permit. They're not a, they're not nobody eats them, so if you're if you're a person that eats a lot of fish, you're not gonna like them. They're just very elusive. Uh-huh. They're they're shaped like a football, so much bigger. Uh-huh. Uh, and you, they're very finicky on, on flies. I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll look at them. I mean, you, you can see them. That, that water's so clear. You can see the fish coming in the water. You're making the cast to them. They will go to the fly, look at it, inspect it, swim around it, and then swim off. You know, just That's frustrating as heck. Yeah. Uh, but 
they, that's the best destination if you want to catch a permit to go is there because they've got more permit than just about anywhere else in, in the world. And then the other thing is uh, bonefish. It's a big bonefish. Bonefish are easy to catch just about anywhere. Bonefish are pretty prolific. And once again, they're not a good eating fish, but they're just a fun fish to catch because you can wade along beaches. You can see big schools of them, and they're they're usually pretty eager to, to take a fly or take anything else that's for that matter. Bait, so you're too. saltwater fishing there in Belize? Yes, saltwater okay. fishing. Uh, generally for the, the tarpon and the, uh, and the permit and, the, and trying to get that bonefish as well. I have caught snook down there. They do have snook as well. What is snook? Uh, snook is mainly, a, it's kind of a, it is a subtropical fish. They do have them in Port Isabel too. It looks like a bass, but it's got a lateral line okay. running along it. Um, and um, it's just, a, it's another good game fish. It is a good eating fish too though. So What about bass fishing? You fish bass? Uh, yeah, I do. Here? No. Is there much good bass fishing here? In Texas, around this area? Oh, well, Texas, yeah. East Texas is known in, uh, for big bass lakes. Okay. World bass records come out of there. And West Texas, Falcon and Amistad, those are all big bass lakes. So Not they much are. here in San Antonio. You can. Uh, San Antonio, when I mean, we do it, our, our lake, for some reason, is not as conducive. I don't know why, but they do have stripers in there. Uh-huh. And uh, they do have bass, and they got a lot of smallmouth. It's just not as good. Yeah. And then, plus, I don't have a, I don't have a boat to fish out of here. So. What about Canyon Lake? Have you fished in Canyon That's Lake? That's what I'm talking about, Canyon Lake. You okay. Need, you need to have a boat. Yeah, I mean, you, I guess you could walk along the banks and fish, but yeah. I don't know how, how effective that would be. There's a, there's a, um, a small pond near Boat Ramp 11. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I didn't. Boat Ramp 11 is Rebecca Creek. That's kind of that's really like the river. That's where the yeah. river runs into it. And that's mainly if I'm going to fish. That's that's where I'm going to go on my paddleboard. I've gone down there to fly fish before. Catch anything out there? Yeah. Nice. We were. Just, I was catching. I was using a light rod. Uh, we were catching a bunch of perch and little stuff and some yeah. fish. Just having fun. Alejandro and I were just near Boat Ramp Eleven uh-huh. at that pond in the neighborhood, and I had these these worms um, that I had got from my house. Because mm-hmm. you know all the silkworms, are they out here or no? Oh, not much. Yeah, we got some of those. Threw them on the hook. Caught a perch. Mm-hmm. Threw the perch onto the line. Threw the perch <laughs> out there and caught a decent sized bass. bass. Yeah, probably go. about a two pound bass. That's out there. pretty cool. Nothing crazy. I didn't. I've never seen a pond out there, but I don't really pay attention. I'm normally going straight to the boat ramp and getting out of there. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. It's like uh, there's a there's a road called Eagle, something. Hmm. When you're going towards boat ramp 11, it's right down there. Not a big not a big pond, but it's only for like the neighborhood. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's decent. It was fun. So how'd y'all get in? Uh, so he, he well he lives right there. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Right near that little pond, right, pretty close to boat ramp 11 too. Yeah. I've gone canoeing boat. That's a nice little spot to go canoeing to boat ramp 11 because you go left and then it goes all the way to the lake, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't go too far, but. And you go right and it'll go, just takes you into the river. It slowly gets down to, to the original river channel okay. to into the Guadalupe. Yeah. Go smaller, just. It's going to be, well, smaller. I mean, eventually it's going to run into where the river you crossed at, you know, at 311 when you came into my house. Uh, yeah. It's going to be like that eventually, but mm-hmm. it's, that's a long haul to get to that point. You, would, you wouldn't do it in a day in a kayak. It would take you two days to get oh, to Oh, really? Yeah. You paddleboard? I do. And you fish off of your paddleboard? I do. Oh. I do. Is that fun? I mean. Yeah, it's, it's fun until a boat wave comes across and knocks you on your ass, uh-huh. and it's not fun. And you got people watching you, and you're know, like, oh, look at that idiot out there. But no, it is fun. It, it's a blast. How do you carry all your stuff? In a vest or something? Uh, it, usually, I'll take a Yeti cooler, and I've got one. I've got it. I had it designed. It's, a, it's like the mothership for, for kayak or, or stand-up paddleboards. It's 14 foot long. And uh, J- JR knows it well. It saved his ass on that triathlon thing that we did two years oh, that's- ago. <laughs> He wrote it. That's I was thinking, right. did you swim any at all, or did you just basically 
let me tag you around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, he was so funny. He would he'd be like, okay, I'm going to try to swim. I'm going to try to swim. So I'd push him off and go see if somebody else needs something. And he's screaming, Chris, get your ass back over here. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, it, and it's designed with the front. It looks like a kayak, so it's more stable. Okay. And uh, it's, it, that's, you got to have that. A standard paddleboard would be tough to fish off of because uh, okay. they're just squirrely. Yeah. Uh, but that's a little more stable. And it's actually got a, a place where you can put a cooler in it, and it attaches to the bottom of the board and so it's stable so you can put all your stuff in there as well 14 foot 14 foot that's like a boat you're yeah, standing on almost a boat. a boat yeah damn yeah that's pretty awesome I've, I've taken i've taken my dog i've taken people on it with me uh-huh. two people on it so yeah it's it's it that's cool help. you go out here often to canyon lake i used to i haven't I, I was thinking last year was so this place was nuts last year every day due to the pandemic looked like the fourth of july which the fourth of july out here it's it's like Mecca. There's so many people you can't get around. That was like that every day of the week last year. I would drive up to my neighborhood where you came up by boat ramp one. There's mm-hmm. always cars. On the weekend, there's cars parked all up and down there. Every day it was like that. And I was just, I, I didn't even want to get out on the lake. Yeah. I've never seen people lined up on the rocks before, finding, just trying to find ways to get to the lake you yeah. know, and, and camping on rocks, staying on rocks all day long. They just wanted out of the house. Yeah. So I didn't time. go out last year because it was just too crazy. Actually, I did try one time. And we actually, yeah, I remember that now. It was, uh, oh, I was kayaking with uh, Jeannie uh, Holmes, and we it was a bad accident too, just boat accident. Oh uh, no way! Yeah, boat at, when we were at boat ramp one, uh, and I realized real quick then I was basically I couldn't stand up because it was. I mean, it was like the trying to do it on the Gulf of Mexico. The waves were three foot swells because constantly. of everybody's everybody's boating. boat traffic. Yeah, not so much boat traffic. That's crazy. So, yeah. So you know how to eat carp. I have never done it. I know people say to uh, my, my uh, uh, I had a good friend that would, he could always pull it off and he would make carp balls uh-huh. and get them away from the, from the bone, but I have never tried it. Best way to do it, if you ever catch a carp, get a two by four uh-huh. and then you got to hit the side of the fish with a two by four to like soften the meat up. Yeah. Once you soften up both sides, throw the fish away and eat the two by four. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> The, t- the carp that I had tasted like I went out there and licked my tire on my car. <laughs> and I was like, what part of this is supposed to taste good? Uh-huh. Like, oh, you're eating carp. I'm like, I don't care. It's not good. <laughs> What's your favorite type of fish to eat? Uh, probably saltwater, probably going to be flounder. It's definitely the best for me. Uh, freshwater would definitely be nothing better than uh, either walleye or crappie. Those are the two best ones. Yeah. You eat sushi? Oh, yeah. What about salmon? Yeah. You like salmon? I love salmon. Fatty salmon. Oh, yeah. nothing better. I've also, that's another. I did a trip in British Columbia. <clears throat> one of my favorite trips, too. Oh, because wow. Because we, uh, we, we flew into this remote little... You know you're flying into a small airport whenever it's an airport and a uh, motor repair facility and <laughs> a lawnmower sales facility. And, I mean, you're just on a very small commuter plane. Uh, I mean, we were, we were making jokes. You know the comedian Ron White, right? Yeah. You know, he's got that one story about the plane he was on that was so small. They were, they were waving the geese around. Come on around. <laughs> they were going so slow. That's what we felt like. We were clipping the tops of the Rockies when we were flying over. And they were like, man, this is going to be bad if this wow. thing goes down. But uh, we, we land in that little place, and then they'll take you for like a three-hour boat ride to get to this little facility that we stayed at at British Columbia. And it was mainly just a compound. And uh, had a big lake on it, so you could stay there if you wanted to and just fish out of the lake. Uh, but we took we took uh, float planes out every day that pick a different location, and we wow. would. We, it was really kind of cool because they put the boat motor on the plane, 
and then all of our fly fishing gear. He would take off, take us to our destination, drop whoever you're fishing with your partner for that day, drop you off. You get the boat motor out. They would tell you where the boat's parked or where the boat's hidden. You brag the, you take the boat out of where it was hidden. You put the motor on, and then you would go to, to the river's edge Whoa. and the lake and, uh, and fish for the day. We were fishing for Dolly Varden, salmon, trout, steelhead, just whatever. They had everything in British Columbia. What part well. of Canada, what area? Uh, well, British Columbia, Canada. And we were fishing around Bella Coola, which is close to the coast, about halfway up. Is we're, that we're probably we're probably we flew out of uh, Vancouver and it, okay. was a, it was about an hour flight north of Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. Oh, an hour north of Vancouver. Yeah, because I've been to Vancouver once camping up there. Yeah, camp near Whistler. Whistler's beautiful. Yeah, Victoria Gardens. Yeah, we always every time we go up. We I did two trips there, and one of my fly fishing buddies he would sponsor trips there and every year and uh, he he absolutely one of his favorite destinations and ours too, but. Um, we would always make sure we'd take an extra day and stay in Vancouver and go check that out. That is amazing. Fishing out there, it's probably as remote, you're saying. How is the fishing? Amazing. Catch a ton of fish. Unbelievable. Really? I mean, it's like, you know, they probably hadn't seen it. We would go there, we'd stay in this facility, and you would never hear a car go by. You would never see any. We never fished a lake that had another boat on it. I mean, mm -hmm. we were it. You're taking a float plane because, I mean, there was not many people that lived up there at all. Most of them were native Indians if they did. Uh, and so you just you didn't see anybody fishing. You had you saw a lot of grizzlies that you had to be careful for. Wow, that would be that was the worst part was fishing along in salmon season with grizzlies. You don't see the grizzlies as much during the trout season, but yeah, yeah, and just catch day. a fish all day. Yeah, God, I need to take a trip out there. Mm -hmm. I would love to go to like Alaska to go salmon fishing too. That's I haven't done Alaska. It's supposed to be good. I would tell you this facility that I that I use, but unfortunately the uh, the guy that we we would go with that owned it uh, he sold it to supposedly a Canadian martial arts instructor that trained martial art, Olympic uh, martial arts, something, I don't know, jiu-jitsu or something. And uh, that kind of ruined that. And then we read in the paper that uh, the facility got busted for uh, BC gold, which is marijuana, by the Canadian Mounties. Because oh, they flew over one day and noticed it was in the middle of winter. And they're like, I wonder why that top of that building doesn't have snow all over it. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he, he turned in one of the buildings, and that's just where they were growing marijuana wow. in there all the that time. Sucks. So, yeah, that place is gone now, and it was a perfect location. Uh, but I'm sure there's other places around. I just haven't yeah. checked into it. So what, what part of... So British Columbia is what, the west part? Far west. Above, okay. It's above Washington. And so there are, like, it, British Columbia is considered a, uh, what do they call them? Province, I think. A province? Is, I think that's what they are. And it's, it's part of Canada as a whole, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So how many provinces do you know are Canada? Three? They didn't know I had to take a test today. <laughs> Just, uh, there's Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Oh, there's a bunch. So actually, if I'm following it left and right, I think it's, uh, it's definitely British Columbia on the Pacific coast. Next one in is Alberta which is where Calgary is, kind of stampede, more cowboyish. Yeah. Then it's Saskatchewan, which is more remote woods. And That's where Marcus there. is from. Who? Marcus. Winner? That's right, he is, yeah. Yeah, Saskatchewan. Yeah. We need to be able to ask Marcus. I think tell me the rest of them. I know Quebec and Ontario is in there, but I, don't, I think there's even another one. Uh, well, yeah, because Labrador. Labrador is on the, the, on the Atlantic side. It would, uh -huh. be the, it would be the far, yeah, the far eastern side one. So essentially that is Canada's version of like our states. Our states, yeah, yeah. So you okay? So let's talk, talk fishing. Uh huh. Tell me about you. You were stationed in Mont or what'd you say? Monterey. Monterey. Uh huh. Seventh Infantry Division Light, which is no longer there. Uh, it was a great, great location. Um, what branch? Army. 
before that, before I got to Monterey, when I first uh, got out of my training and it was military intelligence, they sent me over. It was in 88 during the Olympics. Uh, at that time, North Korea was, they were, thre- Kim Il-sung was threatening to disrupt the Olympics by uh, bombing uh, South Korea and attacking South Korea. Jesus. And they had, they had, you know, they never did sign an armistice after the Korean War. They were always still uh, divided. And so uh, as soon as I got out, that was immediately what they were, they were sending everybody that they could uh, over there. So I, I got, ended up getting stationed on the DMZ, which is the demilitarized zone, the, the neutral space between North and South mm-hmm. Korea. Uh, so you lived in Korea? For a year, yeah. Wow. For a year. Well, lived, stationed, I want to call it living, mm-hmm. but yeah. Uh, on the west, that was on the western corridor of the DMZ, uh, in a, outside of a town called Moonsan. Uh, just, yeah. I'm not a big Orient person. And so, it, you know, it was a lot of different, had to, the smell of kimchi, whenever they're making that kimchi, I mean, I, I never got used to that. I finally got to where if I could get past the smell, it actually tasted really good. Mm-hmm. And I'm still hacked at myself because now you see is everything, everybody talks about Korean barbecue, how great it is. I never saw any Korean barbecue when I was over there. Uh-huh. Uh, that's all it was ramen shops. And I thought those were Korean until they tell me, no, that's for you GIs. I'm like, what is oh. a UGI? No, it's for you GIs, you oh, soldiers. Oh, GIs. Yeah, you GIs. Oh, okay. We just have that over here. That's not that's that's y'all's Americanized Chinese thing that you. So you, you were needed. on the DMZ that you were on that border. There. Yes, on the line between the two. Did you see the border and like? Uh, no, we weren't on the. We, I, I wasn't actually on the fence where they have the fence that goes across. Yeah. Uh, or I wasn't that close. I was about five miles off of that at, at, a, at a camp. Uh, and we were, I was stationed with a, a group of air defense and artillery uh, groups, and I was helped them provide, you know, where we're going to set up placement, where, they're, where they're, we had all kinds of, we had Patriot missiles, we had, you know, we had and all the way down to Stinger missiles, shoulder fired stuff in case they came over in small planes. Mm-hmm. So we would just, that's what we were wow. working on. Yeah. The cool thing was, finally, the final weekend after they realized North Korea is not going to do anything, they gave us passes where we could go to, to Seoul, Korea to see the Olympics. Oh, okay. uh, like at the sea was a closing ceremonies, but it was unreal. Really, was just an unreal experience. Go to if you ever get a chance to go to Olympics, I would say do it, take it, because international community, people everywhere. Yeah, it's just really cool. Uh, yeah, that sounds amazing. It's cool to have. Um, it's cool to have people from all over the world competing, so you get to see different talents from across the globe. Yeah, and if you're out in the bars hanging out at night afterwards too, you get to see all different type of people. Everything. Yeah, it's always really fun. That's awesome. You get to know if you're a people person or a people watcher. Yeah. Yeah. The Olympics is cool, but from what I've heard, it's the biggest scam because those athletes pay so much money to train, yeah. but they don't get paid. Mm-hmm. And the Olympic organizers are the ones making the money. Yeah. Which, I mean, it is what it is. Yep. So, how long were you in the service for? I had an eight year commitment, four years active, four years reserve. And so when did you decide age. to join? Right out of school? No, I, well, actually, yeah, I got out of. I came from a long line of um, Scott Irish. Uh, actually, figured that out through. Uh, that's another story. Could probably take us into a whole rabbit hole. But uh, I was. I knew I was a fifth generation Texan. I knew I'd been in Texas for five generations. So you were born here. I was born here, and my five of my great grandfathers were born here. Whereabouts? They were, they were in Central Texas, is where they were from, to East Texas, all all throughout the area. But when I started doing my ancestry, I realized, okay, they came across whenever it was Republic of Texas. They came across because Texas was recruiting people right after the Alamo for the Republic of Texas Army when we were going to try to defeat Santa Ana. They came from Georgia. Came, he stopped in Louisiana. It was really funny because it got this whole story from just doing ancestry. He stopped in Louisiana, married a Cajun wife there whose last name was LaPriere, and, uh, and brought her across to Texas, and her whole family came with them. And uh, back then, if you agreed to serve in the Republic of Texas Army, they would give you 
uh, 30 acres of land. You could pick where you wanted the land. Wow. And uh, so he picked East Texas, Northeast Texas. And then I was trying to trace back where I was from from there. And I ended up, like I said, Georgia. They came across in Virginia. And they were from Ulster, Ireland is where they came across. And I'm thinking, Ulster, where is Ulster, Ireland? When, that, when wow. I started researching, I realized that's Northern Ireland. Uh, and that was, a, you know, the Protestant sect of, of Ireland. And most of those, you could have been either British, English, I mean, I mean British, uh, Irish, or Scottish, one of those three, but mostly it was the Scots because England really didn't like, they had been battling with Scotland forever, but all those moshes and those mires and that, you know, bogging them down and the fact that, you know, the, the Scots didn't really have one leader. They they followed clans, and so you might defeat one clan, but you haven't defeat, you haven't defeated anything. Uh-huh. You got fifteen other clans you got to go defeat. So they they really got bogged down to where they were like, we don't want to fight these people anymore. It's not we're not controlling that land. Just let them have it. But then they, that's when they started doing the whole taxation thing of of Northern Ireland because they did hound that uh, part of it, and they were telling the the Scottish people. We'll give you go over there for land. Well, you can you can farm the land and uh, just pay us nominal taxes. And uh, of course, then that's when they started taxing the hell out of them. And mm. so that's when they started migrating and a lot of the Irish too. And they, they wanted to put the Scottish there so the Scots and Irish would start fighting each other and leave the English alone. And that's <laughs> kind of what it did. But then whenever they started taxing them, you know, they got tired of fighting against each other, even though they still, they still did with the IRA and, the, and the, the two religious factors. But the ones that went across to America, once they got to America, they were just flat out known as Scott-Irish. The, those the 13 original colonies up there, they didn't, they didn't really like the Scott-Irish people because they mm-hmm. looked, viewed them as you know, lesser than the, than the English. And uh, so that's why they kind of pushed them out into the inner cities and they pushed them down south into the colonies. I and see. that's where the Scott-Irish are really kind of known for saying they formed the Western migration like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett because they're the ones that pushed west. Nobody, the English didn't really want to go out west because there are Native Americans there that would kill them at, mm-hmm. you know, at will. And so they let the Scott-Irish go out there and, and settle the frontier and push out west. And so what happened is kept eventually pushing further west and further west on the Western migration. So you're considered, you, you're Irish. I don't. They they lived in Northern Ireland, where they came across from. And there were several generations there. But like I say, they could have come across from Scotland. I couldn't trace it I down see. how they got to Ireland. If they were true Irish, yeah. or if they could have been English too. Most of those people on the northern border of England, they were about the same thing as Scots. They were the poor English, and that's why the English sent them up there. You go fight those people. We're, we want our we want our cities by ourselves. So <clears> so know, where where were you born? Uh, I was born in Mount Pleasant, Texas, East Texas, or outside of Longview, and I, I was raised in Longview, Texas. Longview. Where is that in relation to here? Uh, like- Longview is on. Um, it's probably in between Shreveport and Dallas, off of I twenty. It's it's about okay. sixty miles from the Louisiana border. Um, so, oh, East Texas. I'm sorry, I'm thinking West. East Texas, Northeast gotcha. Texas. Yeah. And then you came, and then you lived there up until I went. I stayed there and. Uh, when I was going to college, uh, when I got out of high school, I went to college there at, at uh, uh, University of Texas at Tyler and uh, worked at a health club uh, there and was a racquetball instructor for forever uh, until all the time I was going to school. And that's whenever I got out, I realized that, okay, I can't be a racquetball instructor the rest of my life and be a gym rat. So uh, and I, my whole history was, you know, fifth generation military. Texan military. All my dad was military. Everybody had been military. And so I was like, why don't I go in the army? And what I wanted to do was I wanted to be an interrogator. Uh, mm. And I went, so that's why I went in the military intelligence field. When I got to the part where they have to, and I know Jason Allman and Steve Powell are gonna laugh at this, they give you this fake language that you have to translate. Okay. And they'll tell you, translate it back to us what it's trying to say. When I got through with the test, the guy came out and he goes, do you even speak English? <laughs> 
he's, he's like, I think you can only speak redneck. And I'm like, ah, yeah, did I do bad? And he goes, yeah, you're not going to be an interrogator. He goes, there's no way we're going to waste oh, money on trying man. to teach you a foreign language. So then I had to pick up and, uh, and just find another intelligence field. So I just became an analyst, which analysts generally, what I was was a glorified grunt with a map. So I did. I carried the maps in there and I was always you know, doing the terrain battlefield preparation of uh, where, you're, where you're supposed to go for mobility corridors. You don't want to get caught in a trap or something. So we would just do terrain uh, maps to show where you know where you're going on a. So you're a great navigator. Terrain. No, <laughs> I am not. Basically, if you want to go by instinct and know which way to go, ask me which way I'm going, and then go the other one. You're probably going to be right. <laughs> I am horrible, but I can follow maps. You know, I if I got a map, I can follow the map. Yeah. And really, I didn't have. I wasn't going to be leading the map. I was just the one showing them. Okay, this is, this could be a choke point here because you're going between. You know, it, the the lines on a map get narrow. That means they're either a steep hill going down that's going to put you into a low valley, which you don't want to be across because you get cross shot from people. Uh, so most of what, that's what I was doing. I figure out where water spots are. You just you're just studying maps of wherever area that you're going to be fighting or whatever you're going to be doing, and you just try to figure out the best locations. And I, most of what I did was uh, work in the tactical operations center and was briefing generals or colonels or whoever was in there about uh, daily activity and you monitor intelligence activity that came across the radio, and then let let them decide where the where the troops are going to be for the day. Real quick, yeah. You said you were in Tyler, Texas. You know who's from Tyler, Texas? Jamie Foxx? You know Jamie, Jamie Foxx's? The actor? Yeah. I never knew he was from Tyler, Texas. Yeah. I know. I can tell you who's from Longview, Texas. Who's from Longview, Texas? Matthew McConaughey's from Longview, Texas. Uh-huh. He's a, I know he's a big Texas. Yeah. He, he, he claims he's from Uvalde, but he went to high school in Longview. And, uh, and uh, Forrest Whitaker? The Crying Game. He's played in a bunch of different movies and stuff. Now he, he's he's from Longview as well. Did you know any of them? Uh, I didn't know Forrest. He was only there. He wasn't born there. He just lived there growing up as well. Uh, there's a famous country western singer, uh, not so famous now. He was in the '90s. Uh, Neil McCoy. Never uh, heard of him. He he uh, he had a several number ones. Even one Entertainer of the Year. He's a country artist, uh -huh. and I knew him. We played softball together. He was he was could have been a comedian. He was hilarious too. That's funny cool. funny guy. Great personality. I knew him. Matthew McConaughey, I don't, I mean, I know I ran across him. He was, because my ex-wife actually dated, went on dates with him or a double date with him. Really? Uh, so I know when I worked at that athletic club, there were, I was the racquetball instructor. There were a lot of kids that were, you know, five years, I was in college. They were still in high school and uh, or in junior high even. They would come in and just little hell raisers. I had to, you know, kick them out of the gym all the time, make sure they weren't tearing something up and tearing yeah. the place up. So I was constantly grabbing them by the ears and throwing them out. And, <laughs> and I know his best friends were members of that club, so ah, I'm quite okay. sure he was in there. But no, I've never met him, so I don't know him. Gotcha, sorry, I went on a tangent. But yeah. so you did um, map reading and such. Did you do any active duty where you were actually on the field? Oh, yeah. Or in the field? No, no, no. We were in the field. Now, I wasn't only, there wasn't only time we had any type of war going on when I was in, because I got out right before the Gulf War. Uh, Panama with Noriega, uh, that was a, you know, it lasted a whole day because I think we basically sent more soldiers and they had a population in Panama. Jeez. So he just said, no, I, I give up. So yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was like a two day event. Uh, so nothing ever was on, we, we're there for that. And the whole, of course, the Korean thing, it was kind of the, they were threatening war, but they never did anything. They never came across the border. But where yeah, else? every day was on the field there. Where else were you stationed? 
That's when I came back to California. From there, when I left Korea, I was stationed in Monterey, California, and spent my last three years in Monterey, California. It was like they sent me to hell in Korea, and then they sent me to paradise. Monterey, the base on Monterey was right on the ocean. I mean, every day I'd go, I could hear blue whales migrating at a certain wow. time of the year from, the, from my barracks. Uh, just a beautiful location. We would we'd have, we'd throw bonfire parties on the weekends, and that was oh, the other good thing. We were, we were a rapid deploying unit, 7th Infantry Light, uh, along with 101 Airborne and along with 82nd Airborne. There's always one that was in contingency, or you had to have one uh, of your uh, battalions that were always uh, ready to go. Then you had one that was in reserve. Then you had one that was a tertiary. If you were ever on your tertiary week, they gave you, you had, you had the week off, basically. You go do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we would travel all up and down California. That's, that's when I would get to go fishing or whatever, go down to L.A., go, mm-hmm. to, go, to the, uh, go out west um, to the, what is that lake out there? I just drew a blank on it. Tetons. Yeah, the Tetons. Tetons. Um, Where's that at? Teton Mountains. That's, that's uh, on the Utah, I mean, on the Nevada border. The bottom? Border. Utah border. Oh, oh, Utah, oh, okay, okay. Nevada border. Ah, I see. I know I'm messing up the name of that lake. What's a big lake in California? Uh, there's a few. Um, it's, lake it's Tahoe? Tahoe, thank you. That's what I'm thinking. We do have Tahoe. Tahoe's gorgeous. Yeah, I'd like to have the last five minutes of that conversation back. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out what part of California that Tahoe is in. Uh, it's the north, uh, northwest yes, side. Or no, yeah, sorry, yeah. northeast side. Yeah, but we would, we would just travel all up and down California. So we, I, got to, I got to experience all of California the three years I was there. They have sensed, and I, I, I realized that land is valuable. How, I was thinking, how does the Army own a base like this? Mm-hmm. And it had been there since World War II. It was a training base for, for even back then. And eventually they moved 7th Infantry Light uh, up to Fort Lewis, Washington. So you said that base isn't there anymore? No. Probably parts of it still are. I don't. I haven't been back to see if they cleaned it up. Uh-huh. Uh, but I don't know what they plan on doing. It's probably. It probably took quite a while to clean it up because it was a. If it was a basic training base, there's got to be shells and all type of ordinances mm. all over the place. So I don't know where it's at now. If they turn it into a housing addition or not. It just so happens to be on three almost three perfect golf courses. When you've got Pebble Beach, Spyglass Hill, and even the one that was on the post, Black Knight Hills. You know, it's not a public one because it was military, but it's known as one of the renowned golf courses in Oh, America military too. golf course. It was, it was for the military, but I'm, now it's going to be state-owned. So, uh, yeah. yeah now it's, Do you golf? I'm sure they're probably building houses around that place. Do you yeah. golf? Nope. No. Why would I want to spend less time fly fishing or hunting? On good call, good call. Yeah, no. So what did you do in, in California while you were stationed there? Same thing? Oh, yeah, oh, as far as work-wise? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was, well, that's a funny story on that, too. Everybody says, why did you go enlisted when you get out of the military? Because I was stupid. I listened to a recruiter is what I did. I, I wanted to be an interrogator. I knew what yes. I wanted to do. So I go in there and tell the recruiter, I want to be an interrogator. And uh, I went to the Marines. The Marines said, uh, Dude, you join the Marines, you're a rifleman. We'll tell you where you go from there. And I'm like, okay. And I went to naval, the Naval Intelligence, and they said, we only select people to Navy Intelligence. You don't just come in and recruit for it. Uh, I don't think, as far as I know, Air Force didn't have an intelligence service. They just used everybody else's. So Army is the only one that lets you pick it. So the recruiter told me that, uh, yeah, he goes, you can go into OCS. He goes, but you realize people that go to West Point get first choice of what they want. People that go to uh, 
uh, ROTC gets second choice. If you go through officer training school, you're just going to get what's left over. He goes, so do you, if you want to go in the Army to be a military officer, that's great. He goes, but there's a very good chance you're going to be over a motor pool is all you're going to be doing. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. And he goes, okay, let go in enlisted. And then when you get in enlisted, then, you know, later on you can go in and, you know, they'll tell you, uh, they're salesmen. They get paid to put people in yeah. certain things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what he did. And uh, that's the story came out to be when I got to California, to get to your question you asked, when I got to California, after the real world life thing in Korea, I got stationed, assigned to a division support command, which is about as low speed as you can get. They work the beans, the bullets, they do the transportation, they do everything that supports the division, they're overseeing it. Mm-hmm. And so. What intelligence? They stay in the rear. They don't go to the front. They're in the rear. Now I had to do some intelligence work because sometimes people do attack the rear. So I had to do most intelligence. Mostly what I was doing was they would put me into places. What's called the S two is S one, S two, S three. S one is administrative. S two is intelligence and security. S three is operations. Uh, I was the S two, and. I figured out I was getting sent to that location because I had a college degree. There was a shortage of intelligence officers, so they were putting me into that position because since I already had a college degree. And then I realized I have now become a sergeant filling a captain's slot in a motor pool. Exactly <laughs> what the guy told me that I would end up getting is what I got. Uh-huh. And that is also the reason I didn't stay in any longer than I had because at that point I was already uh, 32 years old. Uh, and my, uh, I remember my, my commanding officer came up to me and he goes, you know, I'd love to have you re-enlist. He goes, you've done a great job here. He goes, but you got to realize uh, as long as there's a shortage of intelligence officers, you're never going to get an assignment that you want. He mm-hmm. goes, you're always going to be filling slots that, that we don't, they don't have uh, these S2 security units that they don't have yeah. commanders for. So I'm like, yeah, irony, <clears throat> irony of it all. But most of what I was doing was just security work. Okay. There. When we had talked previously, you had talked to me about being uh, in the army and doing stuff about STDs. That wasn't in the army, no. Or what was that? When I got out of the army, once that uh, okay. once that guy, the commanding officer, said, "If you want to stay in," he goes, "You can, but you got to realize by the time you get out of officer candidacy school, you're going to be 34 years old, and and uh, you're going to have a second lieutenant, 34 years old. You're going to take some ribbing." And he goes, "I'll be glad to put you, recommend you." But I said, "No," I said, "I'm I'm think I'm just going to get out." I said, "I don't want to keep filling these low." Uh, I said, "I've still got four more years of active. I'll fill that out and go." So at the time, I was going to go back and uh, get my master's degree in education and just settle down, be a teacher, coach, whatever. That's what my brother was, and. Uh, I've ran into a friend of my old friend of mine. He goes, "Hey man, what are you doing?" It's out of the army. I said, "I'm about to go back to school," and he goes, "You like tracking down people in the army, right?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I didn't track down a whole lot of people, but yeah, I did like it when I was in Korea. We were tracking down people in bars," uh-huh. and uh, he goes. He goes, I got a job you'll be great at. And I'm like, okay, what is, what's the job? He goes, it's STD epidemiology. And he said, don't let the epidemiology word scare you. He goes, that's a medical term because it's easy. He goes, they can teach you that. What they can't teach is for people how to go into projects and find people. And I was like, okay. And so I applied for it and uh, got the job. They sent me out into, uh, out into Deep East, Texas. I was actually, Tyler was a Region 7 headquarters, so everything we did came out of Tyler. But I worked in Nacogdoches, Lufkin, and, and South, deep, deep, East Tech, deep East Texas. And that's where the wild stories come through. Because basically, in STD epidemiology, what you do is, you're, about, you're really, I've just made a joke about it, I'm just a crack whore helper is what I am. You gotta find the crack whore in any project, and then you, you, once you find them, you're gonna be able to find everybody else you're looking for. And when I say why you're looking Whoa. for them is because whenever anybody goes in to a, to a clinic for whatever and they do, draw blood on them, they always check them 
and you know, quite frankly, most of those are low income. They're always going to be low income. They're going to check them for STDs. They're going to draw bloods on them. And the state loses a lot of money on uh, syphilis cases and syphilis babies because it just costs them money to treat them. And syphilis babies are, you know, or crack whores are delivering babies from, from their johns or whatever. And uh, so the, our job was once somebody goes in for a blood test, if they go in for a blood test, they send you draw you send all those results into the state of texas tyler whatever region you're in and so every day we would where we were at we'd call in whatever time the blood titers would come in and would say okay what do we have any positive cases today and a positive case would be a positive blood test for syphilis now what we don't know is we didn't know what stage they were in we just knew we had a positive case so we first off we had to go find that person which nobody ever goes into a clinic and puts the right address. They just didn't, they're not going to tell you where they live because mm-hmm. they're selling drugs or whatever. Oh. So hard thing to do was find that first initial person. Once you found that first person, then you had to do contract contact tracing. So you had to, you had to question them and find out, Whoa. okay, you came up, you know, first you got to tell them you, you had a positive test for syphilis and, and, never knew what syphilis was. You had to educate them on what syphilis was. More than likely, it probably won't kill you, but if you don't get it treated, it can. But it, you know, we would, we would exacerbate and make stuff up. Like, you can walk around in circles, be, you know, it'll make you go crazy. It, it, you know, tell them anything to get them to want to go treat, get treated. I see, yeah. And, uh, and then you had to find out what's this, where the epidemiology came through. And this is that thing that got popular now with COVID, contact tracing. You know, because okay. that's what you're basically doing is contact tracing. But we had to we had to figure out who we needed to contact based on their symptoms. So you had to ask them, have you had any symptoms, anything that you'd notice? First, just get them general, but then you realize they're going to tell you every little element that they got. So then you got to be real specific because primary syphilis always has a lesion in the genital area. It would always leave a lesion or a sore. And every time you tell somebody that, have you seen a lesion or a sore in the genital area? They're always the same thing. Yeah, I had rough sex. I just thought that was from that. You know, same story every time, you know. Uh-huh. Be like a proctologist pulling something out of a, someone's butt. It was a one in a million shot, I swear. But, uh, Always the same thing, the lesion. Thought oh, it was just rough sex. I, I didn't recognize that. And that's, so then you got to find out how long ago did you have that? That's generally from the first three months to six months that sore is there. So they're very contagious. That sore is very contagious. Whoa. And then if they say they didn't see the sore, this is, if they had these symptoms, you're going to know it. You ask them, did you have a palmer or plantar rash? You get a scaly rash on the palm of your hands or your feet. And I mean, it looks like a fish scale rash. It's Whoa. ugly. And it, it just flakes off. And you know, most of the people were being, you know, they would say, yeah, I saw that, it freaked me out, but I, it didn't hurt, so I just kind of would brush it off. Uh-huh. If they had that, that usually means they were from six months to a year, they're still contagious. If they didn't have any symptoms, then you have to send them in for a confirmation test because it could have it could have just been somebody that already had it before and been treated as showing a titer, or somebody that's never been treated and having neurosyphilis. Neurosyphilis can get pretty bad for some people. That's what killed, uh, Oh, the little French leader. I forgot his name. I'm drawing a blank on him, too. Uh, Napoleon got killed from syphilis, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting. Just, so there's, you know, used to you could die from it. Now we, penicillin is very effective at treating it. Uh, but that's when the contract tracing. You try to figure out if they've seen the symptoms, and if they did, you've got to figure out, okay, who did you have sex with? If they had the Palmer planner, I need all your sex partners from the last year. Whoa. That was a game. That, that was always entertaining. To, uh, well, I don't really remember if I had sex with this person. When you say sex, what do you mean? You know, just like, <laughs> oh, man. 
It just drive you nuts. Was this in or out of the service? Were you still no, in no, the no, reserves? No, no, no. That was out of the army. This, I was out of the army. Okay, so I was working you, for the Texas Department of Health. What did you do in the reserves? What were you when you were? In the, I just had to be available from the reserves. So you were still. It you was, were, it's, it's called IRR, Individual Ready Reserve. Uh-huh. In case they called you up, you had to immediately leave and go. I see. But otherwise, it wasn't like a regular reserve where you have to go <clears> up once a month and report in. It was just you had to uh, commit I to see. staying ready. Yeah. Uh, that, the last four was that. So you and then you worked for the te- Texas, Texas Department. Of health. And this is where you did this. That's where I did this. How long did you do this for? I did that for two years. Okay. Two long years. And every project in, in East Texas, I, I worked. And it, I mean, it got it got to where uh, you just got tired of tracking down these same people. I mean, the same people ever. It's the same stories, same sad cases. The really the bad thing was I did this in the early '90s, and that was also when HIV just started people uh-huh. and didn't know what hiv anytime so an insurance company did a test they were now checking for hiv because they don't want to insure somebody's got hiv mm-hmm. they would send us the results now and you know we're going out to people we would have to actually go work them we're going out to people basically telling them you've got a disease that's going to kill you and uh thank god they took that away from us they started now having testing facilities and treatment facilities where insurance companies couldn't test people thought they had hiv or suspected then they would go into these treatment facilities and they had counseling services to do proper counseling other than you know me army guy walking in and say uh hey i don't know if you know this but you had a positive test for hiv which is the, the disease that uh, leads to aids and uh, you're probably going to die. But in that situation, I wouldn't, I was a little more couth than that, but in that situation, you still had to try to find sex partners uh, as well because you needed to make sure that they knew those people as well. Sad thing about it was uh, you would find out people that were positive for HIV, then on your list would be positive for syphilis, which is telling you they're still having unprotected sex. They just mm. came up with it on top of it, STD. And so, uh, those, you know, those are the people that really weren't very protective of themselves in that population. So, wow. and the low income. And a lot of drug, a dr- lot of Oh, drugs. all drug driven. It's all drug driven for yeah. the most part. Only thing that wasn't drug driven was one time there was a baseball team, a college baseball team that I won't talk about, but a lot of the guys started coming up with uh, herpes. And so they called and said, can you come figure out where we got this from so we don't get this, you know, make sure we don't catch it. Everybody else on the team doesn't catch it. And I was like, sorry, dude. I don't, I actually went and made an attempt at it. And I'm like, no, I too much to do to start working herpes cases you're just you're gonna it's not gonna be a cure for it anyway it's not like i can get you treated you, you can go get medicine but you're gonna have it for the rest of your life herpes so, herpes yeah wow there's no cure there's no cure i mean wow. they've got treatments that control it and most people i mean there are people now that are kind of like hiv they haven't had outbreaks of it but the virus still lives in your body and actually the virus is herpes simplex it's a it's also related to the cold virus the oh, same okay. one yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. the same it's a cold like virus cold too. sore yeah that type of stuff yeah but a different type if it's different type this one can be more pain shingles is in the same family as well uh even though two different routes of getting them shingles comes from uh chickenpox chickenpox uh, herpes definitely comes from sexual transmission uh-huh. uh, so and it's generally in the genital area painful outbreaks and lesions in the genital area um, so that, yeah then they're highly highly contagious and highly infectious uh, in that stage so your so. focus was syphilis syphilis was costing the state the most money for a very short period of time before they knew what to do with HIV cases we had to work those uh, but th- they took that out of our hands really quick and I'm, and I'm glad but syphilis was most of it I mean people that always come in at clinics and they want to be educated on gonorrhea and trichomonas and everything else uh, that was out there but we don't work those cases because quite frankly they, they just weren't costing the state that much money uh, I see mm-hmm. so what how would you go about tracking somebody down? Like, 
How do you know where they're at? How, do you just well, you go find to the, them first. You go to them, the address they put down, which is they probably put somebody the address that knows uh-huh. them. Okay, they just didn't put their address. So that's the first thing you go to that address. You knock on the door, which is always an entertainment venture because you never knew what was going to be in there. Uh, and it's almost always in a project, which is always dangerous. I mean, I had cops tell me, "Why are you going in there? We don't go in there if we don't have to." And Were I'm you like, nervous? In some situations, yeah. Uh, when I first got in there, because I mean, I had situations that and I had people encircle me and you know, a group of guys that got around me. Because I mean, here I am going into projects, they're thinking I'm a narc mm. instantly. And uh, so you had to be careful. But, you know, first thing I do is flash, I'd flash the health card. Hey, I'm just here to help. I'm, you know, I'm not with them, with the police or anything. I'm just yeah. here to help you. And then the other thing I learned to do was most drug people aren't taking drugs in the morning. You know, they're taking drugs starting in the afternoon or evening. So I just made sure if I'm finding somebody, I'm get there. I'm knocking on the door at eight o'clock, kicking their butts out of bed, but mm-hmm. they're still wiping their eyes and they can't figure out what's going on. So that's what. And then they don't have time to think too. It's like, yeah. hey man, have you seen Joe Joe Brown? Like, oh man, yeah, no, Joe Joe he lived down he lives down the road about five blocks, you know, or something like that. And you're like, okay, then you go find out where he's never always stays. There's never lives stays. It's like these they're mm-hmm. migrants. <laughs> they're nomadic. <laughs> <laughs> they're here for this yeah. amount of time and they move to the next yeah, spot. Yeah, just the next place is going to let them stay there or whatever. So, yeah, it's always staying. So you find out where they're staying at that time. So you're essentially you're trying to inform them and help them. You're not like... Yeah, that's the first thing. Like I said, that's what I tell them. It's, it's to help. The first thing you say is, hey, look, I'm with this health department. I said, you know, you got a blood test uh, done recently. You know, what do you, what'd you go in for? And then you're listening. Oh, I had this sore. I had this lesion or I had this rash. That's usually what got them in there. Uh or something, something. I had a cold, something else, uh, and then you you find out where they went, and then just what you're telling them. Okay, look, I know they drew blood and they took blood out of your arm, and it came out that you're tested positive for syphilis, and you educate them on what syphilis is. And then that's when you tell them the disease state, you know, primary, tertiary, or secondary, where you're at, and you try to help them out and ask them about the symptoms if they didn't tell you and disclose them up front, so you can pick out where they're at. And then you tell them, look, I can get you treated. Uh, it's not. A, we've got treatment facilities. I've got the state pays for the medication. It's a, and it's a penicillin shot. As soon as you say shot, most of them pass out because mm-hmm. they don't want a shot. And uh, one of the things we had always do to make sure that my nurses. One of the other part of my job was I had to contract with nurses and doctors that would actually let the state pay them to treat these people because I would call them and say, Hey, what time can I have so and such come through to get treated? And usually the nurse handled it. She just gave them a shot. So I really tried to snooze up with the nurses to make sure that I was good friends with them so they would work them in for me. And I, in every city that I had, I had really good nurses that would do that for me. Mm-hmm. But, um, and that's what you tell them. Say, look, you got to go report here at this time to the nurse. She's going to give you your shot. And I'd always tell them, put it in the refrigerator two hours before it met it frozen because that shot hurt like hell really? and you got it in the butt and so it's like a thick liquid going in there she, and she said sometimes they would start crying oh, you wow. wanted to hurt bad so they would think about it man do i really want to go back and get this again you know you want them to think about it really yeah and try to determine what doing it some some nurses would do that some are like no i'm not gonna mistreat them I'm like okay I just don't want them to keep coming back in here because they're almost always repeat offenders the same people <clears throat> over and over and over so was it it's like it's curable and then they can catch it again or how oh, yeah yeah it's you can cure it with penicillin but penicillin's only short you could go right out of the penicillin and you know next month next two months you you could get it again oh, if you came back with the same person that had that had an active syphilis case you can get it again because it's contact driven so can you educate me on what it is on syphilis yeah yeah it's a spirochete it's just a little it's a little animal that is transmitted uh, through those sores, it can be transmitted okay. through sperm as well. And uh, once it gets in, it, it runs into the bloodstream. It's a bloodborne pathogen. Uh, wow. 
And like I say, normally the you know early stages is mild, just that little sore. You're gonna have a sore somewhere, and it can be painful. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the rash is not painful, but it just freaks you out. And those are telltale signs. But after that, generally, some, there is a condition called neurosyphilis, uh, which can be severe. But you know, my concern. I mean, I really never came across anybody that had neurosyphilis, and if they did, I, I wouldn't know it. Is that the brain? It's it affects the brain, and they say it's if I remember, it's been a long time. It's kind of like it causes motor neural skills where you might mm. stagger, you have a gait, bad memory. I mean, they don't they know long term effects of syphilis, but you know, only way you could tell is if you had it if you got a very low titer. With titer was the blood result because that's usually you could also tell by the stage. If you had a test result that had an RPR, and I don't remember what the RPR real plasma something blood test that they did. Regent, if you had a if you had an RPR that came like one to two hundred fifty six pathogens, that one to two fifty six was large. That meant you get an active case here. You know that person's got actives. And if it was one to sixteen, you're thinking, okay, that's a pretty early case. Maybe they're in stage one. One to two fifty six means they're in stage two. Mm. You get the ones that are one to four, one to one, one to two. That's when you're scratching your head and you're like, oh, okay, what is this? If they didn't have symptoms, you're just assuming they've had it for a long time, and then you ask them if they ever been treated for it before, or, oh, or if they say no, more than likely they just had it and it's just gone into a latent stage of syphilis. Uh, so stif- syphilis is with you forever? Uh, yeah. Without it, treatment? It doesn't, it, yeah, without treatment. I mean, it, you're not going to be contagious or infectious if you get treated. You're going to be fine, but it's going to stay that tighter. You're going to stay on the positive tighter that you still got it. That active spirochete's not going to be. That little spirochete's a little animal organism that gets, it's not going to be in there. So you, you're actually cured of it, but for some reason your blood just always shows that you've had it I on see. the tighter that they use. Yeah. Is it possible for your body to um, kill that little spirochete or... Mm. Like, like, do you, is there a point where you're contagious and then on your own you can become not contagious? Uh, not, wasn't, I wasn't trained that that could happen. Uh, I was just trained if someone's got a positive title, they've got active symptoms, they're contagious. You just, we just made the assumption they're contagious. Uh-huh. I, could, I, I couldn't tell you. I didn't, I didn't read research studies like I do for my products to see if, you know, I didn't, I didn't study the disease that hard. Uh, so as far so as it's you know, possible, but I don't, I don't, I've never heard of anybody that said, yeah, I had active stages and I don't have it now. But I mean, like I say, some people can go through the stages and never get treated and just, they had those weird stages. They, and they never suffer any long-term complications from syphilis. But a I lot see. of, you know, a lot of people, it's at the early on that they knew something wasn't right. Yeah. And the reason the state was concerned, because if you've got a pregnant mother giving birth to a baby with syphilis, it costs the state a lot of money to take care of those babies because it did cause problems with babies. Oh. So that's where the, that's where they're money came through so as far as you understand you're always contagious no 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 only if you have the symptoms only if you got the active symptoms you're oh, not going to be contagious see. yeah yeah no you're not contagious if you had it if you had it and it had been treated you're what no you, longer what contagious if you never got con- what if you never got treated if you never got treated then you go into that neurosyphilis phase and really if there's that or that latent stage in latent stage generally would considered you weren't contagious either oh, you see. didn't have the active symptoms you didn't have that lesion and uh, so you and, and uh, so they just didn't consider you to be contagious then. How common is syphilis nowadays? Haven't worked it in a long time, so I really don't know. I okay, I don't know at all. So what about HIV in the nineties? Was it? That was that's the scary one because that's when you uh-huh. know there were. First off, the rumors were just horrible. Uh, you know there were people that were doing blood testing. Yeah, we had you know I remember some little small towns in East Texas. We were having a, we had blood tests at the school and you know. 15 students came up with positive tests. Jesus and then, Christ. you know, the nurse, school nurse, well, what else are these kids going to have to do out here? They're just having sex. There's nothing else for them to do. And I'm like, oh, God. 
So then you realize it's an education. Education was a big mm-hmm. thing then. And that's why the state got real quick and opened up these education treatment facilities. Uh, and the other thing was, it was very easy to have a false positive HIV test. There was a confirmation test you needed to do. So you never told somebody they were positive until they had the confirmation test. You want to make sure they had a confirmation test before you start scaring them with the death of their life. And yeah. early on, people, if they had a positive HIV test, they were just announcing it to everybody. And then that's when they decided, you know, no, there's got to be privacy here. And, you know, you can't just start announcing who's got HIV mm-hmm. or tested positive for HIV. What do you think about, um, what's his name? Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. So he had HIV and he doesn't test for it anymore. No, he uh, that was the the treatments. That's a good thing, you know. The pharmaceutical companies are pretty good on some things. They can they can come up with treatment against stuff if you give them time in the lab to do it. And uh, eventually, over time, they just came up with better treatment. They realized the cocktails that would run. So I mean, now if you if you come up positive for HIV, uh, I don't know the statistics for sure, but I mean, you got a really good chance of surviving and living a normal life. Nothing happens to you. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, you'll, you still got to be careful because you're contagious. But you, if you can get those treatments, then yeah, you're going to be fine. And that's what he did. He got, of course, he had the money. He got yeah. the best treatments in the world. But his his never showed any symptoms at all. So you think. That it's possible that there is a cure, but it just comes down to how much money you have. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that it's actually a cure. There's not a cure, but there's just they have treatment cocktails, different drugs they can use to treat it, to where uh, you can keep it in control. You can. I guess the symptoms are, are very well controlled. Now I don't. The strange thing with him, I didn't, and that's why I don't know enough about it anymore. It's been years since I worked it. It seemed to me like he said that he doesn't even test positive anymore. Yeah, that's right. I I didn't realize that if you had it, you could go back to not even showing any blood symptoms. That that could be possible. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I would almost question: Did he really ever have it? You know, Mm. did he not? Did he just get an HIV test and not a positive confirmation test? And there are some situations where even confirmation tests can be wrong. So you know, he could have just been somebody that really never had it. But you know, I don't. I I wouldn't want to say that you can have it. You can show positive tests, have active signs. You know, if he had active symptoms, then yeah, you would know it. Yeah. And those symptoms are horrible. It's just a slow death. That's what it is. Uh, t- you know, if you had symptoms, you know you did, and then revert back to having symptoms of getting treatment and then never having having signs of it again. That I don't know. What are some of the symptoms that you know of? I remember they had these horrible lesions, horrible cancers. If you want to figure out what it is, watch Dallas Buyers Club with, Marsh, with Matthew McConaughey. That is a great movie. And that's, okay. that was a guy that was tr- selling those treatment cocktails in Dallas, Texas for patients. They, he could, poor people couldn't get, the, couldn't get the, the drugs. And so he was finding ways. It was called the Dallas Buyers Club. He was finding ways to get these medications and then give them to those HIV patients that needed them. Uh, uh, you know, to, so they could get treated, it's but without movie, paying, with, essentially, without paying or paying, you know, a small amount. Yeah, and I, I, I can't remember exactly how he worked it, but it was just he was really a good negotiator and really how he got in there. And he had it, he had it himself. He had to lose a lot of weight for that movie. He looks completely different. Yeah, I heard like that's one of the biggest transformations when it comes to like actors. Yeah. Yeah, losing a ton of weight for that movie. Yeah, and uh, it was it was a good show, but that was kind of those, those treatment cocktails. It was even showing then, you know, people they got the medications, they're doing fine. I mean, they were they were surviving. It was mm-hmm. some of them that they couldn't get the medications regularly. They were the ones that were dying. Mm-hmm. But it would also show you the symptoms: a lot of cancerous tumor, rashes, stuff in their mouth. I can remember that a lot of splotchy skin, uh, and then just the wasting away. Your body just literally wastes away. You wow. lose all that weight. You can't eat. No appetite. And then, uh, you know, I guess you eventually, I don't know if you die of sepsis or what, but your body just eventually. Wow, that's scary. Yeah. That's super scary. So what did you do after you were done working with the part, you worked in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah. Luckily, I was in doctor's offices a lot. Like I say, I worked with nurses and I 
there's this girl in there. She goes, I would see her all the time in this office because it's a very, very popular doctor's office. And um, she was like, hey, you ever thought about being a pharmaceutical rep? And I'm like, not really. I said, why? And she told me what she told me what the job did. And I was like, you mean I don't have to work in projects? I can just work in doctor's offices all day long? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. So interviewed for a job in Dallas. Got that job, and that started my career. Been there 30 years. Interesting. You still do this? Uh, last October, COVID took my last job. So where I was, uh, I was laid off then. But uh, I'm glad to say I was thought I was done with it. I decided, you know, I, this house was paid for, cars paid for. I don't really need a lot of money anymore. I can get by cheaply. Uh, why not just live a quality life? Because that's the one thing I didn't like about it was one being the not so smart person I am. I always thought I need health insurance. I cannot have not have health insurance. So I was always thinking I need to stay working for somebody so I can have health insurance. And, uh, and then two, of course, when you have girls in college, for me, it was kind of like, I can't take a, a jump of faith in working on my own, but I always want to work on my own. I want to do something on my own. So I got my health insurance license, got my claims adjuster's license before I realized I don't want to climb roofs all day long and look at the roof. So I, that went out and uh, got the health insurance license and that was going to be perfect. And I know, you know, that, that was going to be great. Going to sell health insurance my own time. They want, the company I was working for, they wanted you to do a canned script. You know, they're like, you can't make money selling health insurance. You've got to sell everything else, life insurance, long-term care. And I mean, it was like watching paint dry. It was the most boring thing ever. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do this all day long. And so uh, luckily, a girl that I used to work with, I was a territory partner with at, at Allergan and Forest Pharmaceuticals, which is the same company. Um, she called me and said, hey, one of my old bosses, whenever I left Allergan, contacted me because we had, we had a really good relationship and uh, they're looking for somebody and they wanted me to come up back over. And I told them I was still happily employed. I didn't want to leave. And they said, well, if not you, who? And she goes, I told them about you. So I called the guy and I went through five rounds of interviews. And it's a really, it's a really cool company. It's a small company, Big Pharma. I was kind of, I'm still tired of Big Pharma because there's nothing but a number. Transform me out. And I mean, really, they put you out in numbers and there's just so much micromanaging which that's why I wanted out of the industry uh, this company's only got like 34 reps and uh, they don't really they don't have novel novel pharmaceuticals they have novel delivery systems what they right now their treatment and they they do a lot of other stuff they don't have a sales force they like suboxone for for drug dealers they, they got suboxone uh, not drug dealers for people that are drug overdose okay. or trying to wean themselves off of narcotics and uh, what they do is they make a biofilm which is a, you know those Listerine mm-hmm. things you could put on your mouth and it dissolve? Mm-hmm. That's what this is. Whatever the active ingredient of the drug you want, a company would go with them and say, hey, can you make this our drug and put it in a film for anybody that has difficulty swallowing? If you, if you have a hard time swallowing, ah, and dissolves that's what, on your tongue. Yeah, just step it on your tongue. Seniors, nursing home, Parkinson's disease, stroke patients, Ours is an epilepsy, epilepsy, and so you know, a person having epileptic seizures, they can't really swallow, and so they can put that on there. So it's a novel delivery, but it's uh, that's what I liked about it. And it's a small company; they only have, like I say, 34 representatives. They just cover large markets, and uh, so I interviewed. The final interview with them was just two days ago. Highway manager called and said, "You did fantastic." He goes, "We actually got two territories open now." He goes, "I'll be in touch with you on Friday." Oh, so you almost, I mean... I had not official, but I mean, if he walks away job. now and tells me no, I'm going to think, man, how did I blow that? Yeah. That's, that's a, that must have been a Chris White moment only he could blow up. <laughs> well, congratulations. Well, I'll, I'll let you know tomorrow. <laughs> Are you still going to be living here or would you move? Well, that was the thing. Uh, there were two territories. One was San Antonio, Houston, West Houston uh, territory. The other was that he said, hey, we're opening up another. It's going to be Austin, 
El Paso in the valley, which doesn't make a lot of sense, I know, mm-hmm. but catching planes and flying down there would be what I would do. Uh, after I was assuming to be San Antonio, Houston, and yeah, that's, that's the first one. However, when he called me after the second interview with my, the, his, with his boss, he was telling me about the Austin territory. He goes, Austin's got an advantage over everybody else. Not access is horrible there, but he said they already know about the biofilm products because they've already got pretty good mm. uh, stuff there. And he's like, and I started thinking, well, they. If I had to make a decision now that he's told me that, if I get a choice which one, I might take Austin. But so, yeah. But It would be easier to make sales because they already know the product. They already know the product. They, so that's the hardest thing during COVID right now with yeah. offices being shut down where, you know, you have limited access. And there's some offices that still let reps come in, but there are a lot of them that's only on telephone. It's just really hard. So yeah. I was even surprised. Most pharmaceutical companies aren't hiring. That, that was even rare. But they've got drug stuff coming out in the pipeline. They've got one for epinephrine as well. Uh, you know, so they've got a lot of stuff coming out where I guess they just wanted to have people that could help launch those products along the way. So they're just trying to ramp up a sales force in areas where they have good potential enough to put a rep in there. What is epinephrine? I've heard of it. Epinephrine is uh, it's allergic. If you have an allergic reaction, let's say you, a bee stings you and oh, you start an swelling up. EpiPen. Gotcha. It's an epi, basically an epi, EpiPen in a dissolved form because that's another thing. If someone's having an allergic oh. reaction, you don't want to take the needle out and jab yourself and you know load it correctly. and that, that, That's another issue. So you just put a dissolving on there and like, voila. Wow. So, yeah. so you worked for the pharmaceutical industry doing as a sales rep yeah. for 30 years? Uh, it's been 28 Specifically, yeah. Can you talk about Big Pharma if I have some questions for you, or is oh. that not something you want to yeah, talk about? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I will. Um, big Pharma, everybody sees Big Pharma as the big enemy because they have so much money, um, like the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. What do you know about the opioid crisis? And I used to sell a hydrocodone. You used to sell it? Yeah. Not, wow. not the one that got, it's the oxycodone that gets the big scare because that's, uh-huh. that's you know, schedule two, which means the highest schedule. No medicinal value whatsoever. Hardly. And addictive. Very, all, all of them are highly addictive. The scheduling, there was a schedule five, which was, you know, sleep aids, which is not very addictive. They're, they're the lowest. Three, uh, you know, you can get addictive on, definitely on three. Three is usually hydrocodone products, schedule three stuff. Schedule three, then there's schedule two, which was, had a, med, had a medicinal value to it, like oxycodone, which it was very good for pain relieving, but it was also very addictive. And, uh, I mean, Back then, yeah, I mean, they we kind of twisted things up. You know, it was kind of in the way that it could be looked at as being deceptive. But in some ways, it does make sense, and the pain doctors still treat it this way. It's like if you've got intense pain, you want to knock it out. You don't mm-hmm. want to just put a Band-Aid on it and tell someone to, to suck it out because yeah. it's going to, they're not, the recovery is going to be a lot slower. So you needed to prescribe something strong to get them through that pain. Uh, but then the thing was, you had to get them off of it. And that's, if they're not compliant, they, and if it's addictive, they don't want to get off of it. They start coming up with excuses, going everywhere. So, yeah, and some of the, I know that some of the principles and some of the policies that some of those companies did, uh, I understand that now the FDA went back out and said, no, you were deceptive and you led people to, to believe that your drugs were not addictive. Yeah. So the way we promoted it was you want to treat aggressively. You want to treat aggressively to get the pain out. We weren't telling them that the drugs weren't addictive. We were just telling them you want to treat it aggressively with the most medication that you could and then get them off quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not, is that skepti? I mean, I mean, is that skeptical or is that not really? Because that's most doctors still believe that you've got to aggressively treat pain uh, to get people better quickly. But 
whenever they first come out with oxycodone, they were telling them, no, it's not addictive, don't worry. They, their patients won't get addicted to it. That was the part that got deceptive and they got busted. Matter of fact, that company's not even around anymore. They had, that came out with it? Yeah, Purdue, they, they're gone. Oh, they're, Purdue Pharma. Yeah, they're gone. They, they've had to file bankruptcy and get out. All wow. the claims they've had to play. There are some stuff that, you know, there's, and I know we, we, were, we got in trouble. The other company I work for, we got in trouble because we were promoting a, uh, another product being equal efficacy to the one that's been out forever. And, you know, they were like, you can't say that. You have no proof of that. And we were like, well, we got some studies that show pretty similar. Like, no, I had to head studies. You can't say that. So we we're always doing deceptive stuff. And, I mean, they even had, we had one guy, one manager that he called it spin selling. You know, it's like, you know, just twist the data around, make it, make it look, show something that is actual accurate, but just, you know, put it in a really positive light. Mm. That's all gone now. I mean, the FDA's cracked down on that. It's like, you can't even go with a clinical trial. You have to give them the high, give them the, the basic information and then hand it off. You don't get to make any opinions, but we used to be able to talk about a doctor's opinions. If a doctor formed his opinion that wrote the article, you could say, Hey, this doctor's opinion on this was this, that it could be used here, which may not be on label. You know, it may be something that we're not indicated for. Uh, Neurontin got in trouble for that. It was actually a seizure medication, but it got, it was well known to, to actually help patients in, in, a, in lighter forms of pain. Uh, and so it became very, very effective there, but they were basically promoting it off-label and they got in trouble for that as well. So all off-label promotion now has been gone away. You can't do that. And of course we can't do the entertaining, like I, like I was saying, Every, if we spend any money at all, it's to bring food in. Can't be usually more than $15 a person for a lunch or a dinner. Oh, you're saying when you were uh, take, now, doing meetings with doctors? We used to do, yeah. In the early days, it was, in the early days, it was wine and dine. I would do programs at baseball stadiums, you know, re wow. rent out suites and have speaker programs. You know, we, it was like an unlimited budget uh, back then. Uh, but now, no, everything's got to have an educational component. So they've really cleaned the industry up, and you need it to. Yeah. And I, but I mean, the, the funny thing about that is, we're not dealing with uneducated people. You're dealing with doctors. I mean. How much influence are they going to really put on, you know, risking their patients uh, by making some rep happy just because they send into a baseball game or something? You know, they're they're still going to make clinical decisions based on what they know is right. They're not basing their decisions based on some stupid rep that didn't have half their education. So I actually had a doctor tell me that one time. It was so funny. I thought I was really good at detailing, and I was in his closet and telling him about the mechanism of action of this product and how he could possibly work, use it here. And in his closet, he had like. A hundred medical books. And he goes, you see all those books behind you? I said, yeah. He goes, once you've read all of those, then come tell me where I can use this product. Uh, and I'm like, all right, touche, you won that round. <laughs> <laughs> Is there ever a part of you that feels like regret or bad for working for Big Pharma and, and knowing? Um, Big Pharma, yeah. Uh, in some situations, yeah. I mean, early on, uh, I don't think that we actually ever hurt anybody with our products, even though, uh, you know, Back then, they knew that hydrocodone, when I was selling it, even then they knew it was addictive. So I couldn't go in there and say, oh, it's not addictive at all. Uh, so I mean, it wasn't like I was doing anything that was hurting anybody. But after a while, you just start realizing the big pharma, I don't know. It was just it wasn't one thing that I really enjoyed doing anymore because you're just a, not less that from the evil industry that they are. There are some companies that were evil, uh, like the guy that took the EpiPen. The, the it was you know it was a cheap product. Uh -huh. They took the EpiPen and they jacked the price up. For now, yeah. people had to pay up an exorbitant amount. Those those companies are evil. Most of those are gone. That guy's in jail. But there are some companies that will do that, and almost every pharmaceutical company will do it as well. They have price increases of their drugs over time. They keep jacking them up, jacking them up jacking them up so yeah they are they are greedy on their money they're 
very wealthy. Yeah. But they also claim that we do it in America because you know we have the money to pay for it. That's why we pay more in America because we have to supply those drugs overseas as well, and they don't get any money from there. You know, they're basically giving it to people in other countries, so they're not making profit off of it there. And then the other argument they always made with big pharma was, if you don't have us, who's, we support all the drug studies. We're the ones that finance the drug studies. We're the ones that find out new treatments. We do the investigational things with the, in the labs to find out how we can get better medications for HIV so that people can live and not die. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to look at it that way, then no, they're, not, they're really doing good. I mean, they're actually helping people. But from the typical person, it just says, oh, they're making money. And, you know, okay, well, just, just how you choose to look at it. Yeah. Are they evil or are they good? Are we fighting the opioid crisis? Like, are there... Big Pharma, is, are they putting money towards fixing what they created? Uh, well, Purdue definitely is now. They had, to, they had to pay back in all those cases, but they know. I mean, that's what the product I was telling you, Suboxone. They have some treatments out there. Suboxone is a product for people that are addicted to, to uh, narcotics that will help them. And I've, it's a specific narcotic, and I can't remember if it's hydrocodone or what it is. But they do have treatments. Uh, and they have, you know, they have treatments for overdose and naloxone, uh-huh. uh, Narcan. You can, if someone's overdosed, you, you can Narcan. give them that. You can give them that to stop the overdose, but that doesn't stop the addiction. Uh, mm. Generally, the addictions they have to go through pain management doctors, pain management specialists, and that's where they're the ones that are supposed to manage their pain and manage them what alternative treatments they can put them on. That's why now pain management doctors are doing a lot more procedures, vagal nerve stimulators. Uh, nerve blocks doing yeah. different things to, to block pain other than put you on hydrocodone products so that's why they're they're doing those so that yeah how much influence the pharmaceutical company has on that I, I wouldn't know if they're putting money back but they're probably paying for lawsuits if they found that there was any deceptive practices about uh, marketing mm-hmm. definitely because that happens all the time mm. um, that happens all the time so with with these big pharmaceutical companies um, such as the companies who are part of like the opioid crisis mm-hmm. like Purdue they're bankrupt now they're mm-hmm. having to go back and are they paying people yeah they paid out they had to pay out claims just whatever whatever the court said they had to pay out on claims they had to pay out all those claims to people now of course most of them are class settlement lawsuits which means patients probably not going to get hardly anything lawyers will get half of it and then the patients will get the other half um. uh, but yeah, so I, but the other companies, uh, other drug makers, I think it was mainly focused on oxycodone. Hydrocodone, I don't know how they got through it. I do not know that and hydrocodone is the one that's more commonly prescribed. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's the one more people are addicted to. It's just not as addictive as oxycodone. Uh-huh. And I guess, like I say, I, I, we never told people that it wasn't addicting. I never told doctors it wasn't addictive. So they probably were saying, well, there's no marketing practices here that they said was wrong. Yeah. So we, we probably, if someone filed a suit against us, we'd probably... They would come back and say they didn't do anything wrong. They just said treat pain aggressively. They didn't say it wasn't addicting. So you you knew going in it was addicting. Is there a way to test whether somebody is actually feeling pain or not? Like to know whether they're just addicted or if they're actually feeling pain to prescribe them? No. So it's so it's easy for somebody to just go to a doctor it's, and say I'm feeling pain. It's empirical. It's, you know, doctors have to go off empirical things. You know, based on symptoms and. and one of the the pain that really throws fibromyalgia is one that I've noticed those so, so many doctors off because we had a treatment for it. There's not really any treatment for it, but fibromyalgia pain is a pain that moves around in your body. It doesn't stay localized in one area. It runs along neural pathways. It's believed to run across neural pathways. There's no way to test that. There's no way to know for sure. That's just a, it's a believed thing. It's also a way to get a disability. 
uh, people can sum up and say, hey, I got this pain that's going around in my body. It shows up on my shoulder and it shows up over here in my hips. And you know, then immediately a lot of, there are a lot of people that are just very skeptical and thinking, okay, they're just wanting to get a disability so they can't work or get special money or something. And that's the real reason because there are some people, I had a doctor that told me one day, because I mean, I even, even had one doctor that told me uh, he thought fibromyalgia was a condition made up by pharmaceutical companies just to make more money off of drugs. Uh, scratch my head on that one. I'm like, huh. But then I had another doctor that said, uh, fibromyalgia pain is real. He goes, I've got it. He goes, I wake up some mornings and I have pain in one shoulder. I wake up the next day and it's somewhere else. He goes, it travels, it moves. Interesting. And he goes, there's some days I can't work. And he goes, I tell you, I'm not a, I'm not a head case. And he was a tough country doctor. And he said, it is real. So, I mean, I know that there are aspects of that kind of pain, but it's just very hard. And that's with most pain, there's no test to do. They may have, you know, they may have some type of, uh, you know, if it's obvious broken bone, you know there's going to be pain yeah, associated yeah. with it. But if it's a if it is a a perceived pain, that's very hard to, to tell. Yeah, that's when it takes a trained person. What is fibromyalgia, as far as your understanding? Oh, uh, that well, it's just that it's a pain. Random that moves pain. It's a random pain. Neuro. It's a neural pain. It runs to the nerve system, and it can show up in your arms, legs, back, neck. People have yeah. it in different areas. So, but it's it's believed to be one that runs along neural pathways. They treat it generally the same way they treat depression because they think it's, they're going to probably treat it with a norepinephrine type drug that uh, they think it might be norepinephrine receptors that are firing properly or not getting enough of that's causing the pain. Hypothetical. It's not known. It's just mm -hmm. hypothetical theory. So. When, it, when you were talking about whether uh, big pharma or pharmaceutical companies create diseases and mm -hmm. such so that they can sell their product yeah do you believe that no but i mean i don't believe that i have no indication of that but i mean that guy did make i mean you can see they make the case because there is one interesting thing about it most drug studies are done by pharma big pharmaceutical companies that's who the drug studies are done by if they've got a drug that they brought in here and it's showing efficacy it's showing good they're I know good and well they're going to pay doctors to do the drug trials and do the clinics they pay them that money to, to do those clinics and just human nature human bias is if you're looking at results you know this is this is where quantum physics quantum mechanics comes in you know if you're looking at results and you know you're getting paid by this big pharmaceutical company to have a positive result are you more likely to have a positive result or a negative result there's always that yeah. question in there yeah. the, the, and that's I remember seeing a study at one time it was like what is the biggest influence on the outcome of pharmaceutical trials it was always the payer yeah. Payer, payer, payer. Not the demographics, not the population, not the disease. The person paying for it usually yeah. determines. So there are some things that are just clear cut. You know, they're overwhelming. You know good and well. That drug works. It's yes. definitely from the drug. There are some things when you start dealing with CNS drug conditions and stuff that you're talking about neural pathways that we have no way to test, like fibromyalgia. Could the pharmaceutical companies come up there and do studies and, you know, and say, Okay, yeah, we don't know what this is, but this treatment really worked really effective for it. Did it? Mm -hmm. Or was it just based on bias of those people? Did it really show that much effectiveness? So, yeah. I've heard things along the lines of like kids with ADHD and, and young kids with depression and such. Doctors like to say rather than have holistic, uh, what is the word? Holistic ways of treating whatever they have. They would rather just prescribe medication. So now we have kids. I, I may be wrong, so call me out if I'm wrong. But there are kids who are just automatic, not automatically, but they do a test. They're not paying attention in school or whatever. They have ADHD. Prescribe them a drug. Where it's like maybe that kid's just 
not into school. Maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. he's into something else. And I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm just talking from a... I, well, it's funny you say that, too. I don't know much about the testing on ADHD. I do know for a long time that it was like they're overprescribed. Same thing with depression. It was like they're overprescribed. If someone, yeah. anybody comes in and says, oh, I'm having anxiety or I'm feeling down, automatically, well, here, go get, take an antidepressant. Yes. Uh, there was a, I had a doctor, a psychiatrist, a guy that I liked a lot. It was really funny. He was like, you know, I could heal, I could heal these people in no time if they would just follow my advice and I'm like what's your advice they give me all these books to read mind body experience mm -hmm. uh, how your mind self-talk you know different ways there yes. were just in depth ways meditation yes you know focus on other things he goes I could I could if they would follow the course of this book they could definitely overcome their anxiety or their depression now I read the book it took me six weeks and I came back to him and I'm like okay I understand a lot of it but I still there's not like a big ending it's still like it's a process and you kind of have to figure it out and he goes yeah and he goes that's and he goes that's why I'll never get my patients to do it. he goes if, if for every patient I've got my thousands I might get one or two to even read the book like you like your dumbass mm -hmm. did and he said the reason for that is because we're in a pill brain society people want to take a quick fix pill yeah. they don't want to take a process to fix something they don't want to have it drawn out over six to eight weeks or yeah. 16 weeks or whatever they want a pill that they think is gonna help them get better so that's answer that question that is a good answer mm-hmm what about kids being overprescribed for ADHD and such? Do you think that is overprescribed? That I don't because a kid doesn't really have the option, right? The parent says, "Okay, prescribe it." Yeah, and I'm probably I would have probably been uh, AD, ADHD or hyper or ADD at least oh, yeah, deficit uh -huh. because I was I would daydream through school all the time. So I don't know enough about the test to know how accurate they are. If they're not if they're not definitive tests, yeah. Uh, you know, didn't know. I would say no. They're probably overprescribed. They're probably just trying to to do a treatment for them. Yeah. Uh, but that I don't know. I didn't. I never really dealt that much with ADHD or ADD. Uh -huh. But I do know that there are kids that have benefited greatly from the medications because there are some that are just bouncing all off the walls. You know, they can't stay quiet in school. They can't focus. They can't pay attention. Yeah. And I mean, I've had educators tell me. I mean, my ex-wife being one, that yeah, the, there's there's a notable difference whenever they are taking their medication when they're not in the classroom. Yeah. So yeah. Adderall is a form of what drug? What's that now? Adderall. That is an ADHD. Drug. Yeah, it's a form of what drug? Oh, now you're testing my knowledge. Her heroin? Not heroin? No, I've never heard of that. Um, ah, shoot, I forgot what it's called. Basically, it's like crack huh. in a prescription. Well, a lot form. of the drugs that they do use, yeah, it's it's almost based on a, a weird sign. I never could figure this out. A lot of the drugs are there are some drugs that are just pure nor or cocaine, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, but a lot of them are speed. It's, it's speed, speed products. Speed, speed, yes. It's speed because the whole I don't know how the body works on this, but it's like if you speed the body up, then I guess it naturally. If you're using speed against someone that is already out of control, you would think it, would, it you think it balances them out. You'd think it do just the opposite. Yeah. So I'm not enough of a scientist to figure out how gotcha. the heck that works, but yeah, you're right. They did use, uh, I don't know if it was exactly speed, but they would use some type of a drug like that. They also use norepinephrine, which is the excitable neurotransmitter. That norepinephrine, serotonin, you, you've heard those. Those mm -hmm. are all naturally produced uh, uh, in our body, yeah. and they use it to treat those. I don't know if it's just as effective or not, but there, that's a more natural way to treat it, by, yeah. just, by treating a neurotransmitter. But when you start talking about neurotransmitters, you get in the weeds because, once again, we don't know anything definitive on those at all. There's no definitive studies. One thing, I listened to Joe Rogan's podcast. You uh -huh. ever listen to his podcast? Occasionally, but not very often. I haven't. No. He talks about, about how, like, COVID, for example, and they talk about, okay, take the vaccine, take the vaccine. But we don't hear from the CDC. We don't hear from the World Health Organization. Take vitamins. Go work out. Uh, bring your fitness level up, bring your health level up, eat healthy, 
because our body's immune system is the best defense versus you know viruses diseases and all that such mm-hmm. do you think there's a part of mm, i don't know maybe like big pharma paying these organizations to recommend their drugs over no they, time. Would, they would never they would never have that influence either. FDA, FDA has nothing to do with big pharma other than regulate it mm-hmm. completely. Uh, World Health Organization, I mean, you know, who knows what, what controls them or influences them. Uh, I would disagree with, you know, I know that they try to do the educational thing. Eat right, you know, take care of yourself. Vitamins aren't regulated. you got to be careful with vitamins. But, you know, people can make claims about anything. If it's not regulated, who's to say it does what it says it can do? You can make any claims you want to. That's why they published her away from saying take vitamins uh, just because uh, what they, vitamin are you going to take? I see. Is it going to help? Are you taking one from a, from somebody that, that could be produ- putting anything in it, making it a salt tablet? You know, you're yeah. taking a salt tablet. Really. They're not regulated, so they can claim anything they want to. I see. So that's why they would probably never say vitamins. But most doctors that are holistic doctors will tell you, Eat sensible. Eat good food, you know, yeah. and uh, take care. Don't eat more than you're, than than what you're going to be burning off exercising every day. Exercise every day. Yeah, you know, doctors will tell their patients that, and that's the sad thing about it too. Diabetic patients, you know, we most of those type two diabetics are just flat out because they overeat and they don't exercise and they gain weight and then they become type two diabetic when the body's shut down. Simple process is exercise and eat right. They have they have nurse educators that have to go into those clinics and have free clinics to tell the people that when they know it but given the choice what are they going to be doing they're still going to be sitting on the couch eating their potato chips versus exercising they don't want to exercise yeah that's not ingrained in them you can tell them all day long if they're not driven to do it they're not going to do it so yeah that's i don't call that a pharmaceutical problem i call that a personal motivational problem it's almost like people are wanting to blame the pharmaceutical industries But they're not blaming the people for putting in the effort to not have to go to the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. And I mean, I, I can understand why people want to blame pharmaceutical companies because they're, they're profitable. They make a lot of money. They do charge high prices for drugs uh, that are just astronomical. Some actually do it just should be illegal. And it has been shown illegal. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, once again, it's always the, you got to weigh your effort. Yeah, you're paying for it, but how many other products did they pay for that didn't make it that, that, that nobody had to pay for? They had to do the studies where they just weren't showing. And, you know, and I, re- I remember reading that. It takes how much money it takes to get a product to even to market, I mean, even to start getting tested. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And then by the time you bring it to market, it is a whole lot of money. Yeah. And so there's a, they take on a big risk. And what's the saying where there's a big risk there's big big rewards so i mean so they are rewarded big but you know there's always going to be people that want to blame somebody and say oh look at that big rich person over there getting rich doing everything and you know they're doing corrupt stuff and they probably are yeah and they're probably in congressmen's back pockets and everything else but you know is there an industry that really isn't yeah i mean they have lobbyists for the lawmakers what are those people the same thing yeah so i mean yeah there's you find corruption everywhere you're if you're if you're looking for the non-corrupt anything you're you're not gonna find it preachers don't even get me started oh there's like there's podcast too (laughs) (laughs) there's a saying that's like uh if you want to be uh, a small-time crook rob houses if you want to be a big-time crook open up a church 
say. Yeah. I don't want to say preachers because there's so many good preachers out there. It seems like televangelists. Let me go that route. Televangelists. I mean, look at how many of those have been busted down. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just anyway, we're going to another topic. Yeah, <laughs> we're taking we're taking a lot of time. You're running into my draft time now, oh, Julian. Am I? I got time, but nobody want to hear this. Nobody wants to hear me talking for more than five minutes. Much Trust less me, three people minutes. will listen. No, these conversations go on forever. Another question for you: uh-huh. Insulin. I've heard that insulin prices are through the roof. Don't know. I couldn't confirm that. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, my dad took insulin. He was a, he was a type one. Day. He converted late in his in his stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be. I don't want to say yes or no, but if it is, that's another one where some greedy pharmaceutical company came in there. But you know, for every greedy pharmaceutical company that comes out, there's a there's another one that's greedy but not as greedy. They'll come up with a generic to bring yeah. the price back down. That's what the last company I worked for. That's what we did. There's been a Gout. Gout's been around forever. They've been treating it the same way forever. Colchicine is a product that it's an anti-inflammatory they use to treat gout. Been using it for years. Uh, same thing. Another company took the product that was met a cost patients $5. They bought it from the company, jacked the price up, started charging $50. Mm. Patients getting mad complaining to doctors. When patients complain to doctors about how price, price your drug is, doctors find something else to prescribe mm-hmm. until another pharmaceutical comes up and says, hey, we got this down in a different formulation, not the same way, different delivery, cheaper, cheaper price. And then that's, it'll come down. So if insulin yeah. has been around forever, is high and is jacked up, there will be somebody that will come up with a cheaper insulin. Yeah, so that makes sense. But I don't, I don't know that for a fact, no. All right, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, we're taking, we're taking a lot of time. It was a good talk. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I yeah. appreciate the knowledge. Um, hopefully we can do this again. Maybe take me on a fishing trip sometime. Yeah, there you go. Catch some fish. There you go. All right, man. We'll do this again. Appreciate it, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs>